1: It's been 3,103 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 185 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The malcontent news Russia-Ukraine war update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment in early July that Russia had an inadequate number of troops to provide security and administration in occupied Luhansk was accurate, as an increasingly violent insurrection spreads across a third of the oblast. Second, the mood of the Russian millblogger community has notably shifted to quiet resignation in the last 24 hours, after a series of devastating HIMARS attacks this week and the realization that the Russian military has no solution for their quote, "as advertised" performance. Third, we maintain that Russian forces within Ukraine are combat destroyed. Two small attempted advances in Donetsk and Kharkiv ended in failure and Russian positions were overrun when they retreated, resulting in a territorial loss. Fourth, Gains in Kherson by Ukrainian forces in June and July have mostly been eroded, as Russian forces are coming up against the most robust defensive lines on the outskirts of the oblast. Fifth, as we had previously assessed, it appears Russia is giving up on the planned September 11th sham referendum due to a lack of territorial gains and the security situation in occupied territories. Sixth. We assess the risk remains very high through the weekend for more attacks on civilians, civilian infrastructure, and government decision-making centers. Seventh, due to the Russian military reaching a culmination point and the Ukrainian military appearing to be unable to capitalize on the loss of Russian momentum, we believe the battlefront will remain frozen across Ukraine for the short term. And finally, The initiative will go to the first belligerent who can make brigade or larger-sized combined-arms offensives on any front. Let's take a look at our regional updates. Starting with the Donbass region in the Slovyansk-Bilohorivka-Berestova triangle, Russian forces attempted to advance on Ryurivka from Bilohorivka they suffered heavy losses, and their defensive line was overrun as they retreated. Ukraine recaptured the forested ridges outside of Bilohorivka due to the failed attack. Settlements around Siversk were shelled by artillery and rockets, with the Russian Air Force attacking Siversk and Spirna. The August 26th HIMARS strike on Kavdivka killed up to 200 Russian Airborne, or VDV, troops, According to Sergei Khaiday, exiled Luhansk People's Republic administrative and military governor, the severity of the attack was confirmed by grim assessments made by the private military company or PMC Wagner Group on their Telegram channel Gray Zone, and our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Girkin Strelkov. Russian state media Anna attempted to spin the attack writing that the hotel was a field hospital for wounded Russian troops. The location was exposed as a barracks after a journalist visited the facility, contributing to the attack. Supposedly, the hotel has been used as a barracks since 2014. Strelkov lamented, "Ten Ten HIMARS missiles. The hotel is trash. And along with it, a bunch of military men who are used to fighting with comfort, whiskey, and girls. End quote. In Staroblesk, Askyar Leishev, a Russian collaborator, was killed when a bomb planted in his SUV exploded. At the beginning of July, we had assessed that there wasn't a large enough Russian occupation force in occupied Luhansk to provide administrative services and prevent an insurgency from developing. Based on a growing number of assassinations deep within Russian-controlled territory, we have expanded the region experiencing insurgency. Thanks to bad operational security, pictures showed that the Luhansk airport had been converted into an airbase for Russian Mi-8 and Mi-52 alligator attack helicopters. Based on the previous performance of the last six months, it is pretty highly unlikely that commanders of the forward operating base will make any changes to thwart a potential attack. Our assessment for the slovyansk Bilohorivka, Berestova triangle is unchanged from August 18th. We recapped it on Thursday's episode around minute two or three. To the south in Bakhmut, Chechen Kadyrovites reappeared, claiming to have an active role in the fighting for Solidar. The video shared by Ramzan Kadyrov didn't show any fighting or any part of Solidar, and didn't show many Chechens left in the unit. The Russian Air Force, PMC Wagner, the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, with Kadyrovites taking the distant rear but claiming glory, launched a large attack on Solodar and Bakhmutska. Neither advance was successful, and it was reported that Russian troops suffered major losses. A significant attack was also launched on Bakhmut from the east Ukrainian defensive positions along the highway east of the city are formidable, and Russian forces have been unable to break through. It was reported that Russian proxy forces suffered severe losses and are likely under pressure from the Kremlin to get results. The Russian Ministry of Defense, LNR officials, and Russian social media accounts exaggerated earlier gains around Bakhmut. We've adjusted the map based on this updated intelligence— but this does not represent new territorial gains the russian air force also struck yakovlivka and in the svitlodarsk bulge russian forces continued their attack on kodema supported by artillery and the russian air force ukrainian forces continue to hold well established defenses russian troops also tried to advance on zaitseve with air support but could not move the line of conflict Fighting around the railroad yards continued in Mayorsk. Our assessment in the Bakhmut area is unchanged from August 25th. You'll find it in Thursday's episode around minute four. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, the Donetsk People's Republic 1st Army Corps only tried to advance on Nebelskay today, making two attempts, positional fighting to improve their tactical positions, and then an advance, which failed. Marinka was shelled and repeatedly hit by airstrikes. Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Pisky was shelled. We maintain the settlement is contested with Ukrainian forces still operating in the northern part of the village. The British Ministry of Defence also reported, quote, "Pro-Russian separatist militia have probably made some progress toward the center of the village of Pisky." End quote. Near the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, Russian forces tried to advance on Prechistivka and were unsuccessful. In Berdyansk, Gauleiter Alexander Kolisnikov, the deputy police chief and head of traffic enforcement, was killed when a car bomb exploded in his vehicle. Our assessment here is the same as it was on August 17th. We last recapped it on Wednesday's episode around minute six. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region. North of Kharkiv, Russian forces attempted to capture Dementivka again and ended with the same result as the previous four attempts this month. They retreated to their starting position. After reporting Yudi was captured almost two weeks ago, the pro-Russian social media account Rybar reported fighting west of Yudi. There isn't much west of Yudi beyond a few scattered homes and the Russian border. The General Staff reported that Russian forces shelled the village. Rybar also reported that positional battles were happening near Vesele. On August 25th, the General Staff reported that Russian forces tried to advance on Petrivka but were unsuccessful. Based on available intelligence, we've moved the line of conflict north of Mala concluding that the failed offensive on Thursday ended with Russian troops losing ground. The Azov Battalion shelled Russian positions in Ternova, destroying an ammunition depot. Russian missiles hit the central district of Kharkiv City and the suburb of Derkachi. There's more information on this in the war crimes and human rights segment. Our assessment of Kharkiv is unchanged from august twelfth. We recapped it on Wednesday's episode around minute eleven or twelve. On the Izum axis, a small group of Russian infantry attempted to advance on Karnohivka over seven kilometers south of the established line of conflict. They were met with small arms fire and retreated. Northwest of Izum, tradition was upheld with Russian forces shelling Mospanova, Hussarivka, and Chepil, and launching an airstrike on Zaleman. The general staff reported that Russian forces had re-established electronic warfare arrays near Izum that disrupt GPS signals. Some quick assessment. Disrupting GPS signals may be an attempt to interfere with NATO weapons, such as Excalibur shells, for 155 mm artillery, and M30-M31 rockets fired from HIMARS. According to global security, Ukraine's rockets for the M-142 and M-270 GMLRS use inertial guidance supported by GPS. If it's meant to disrupt drones, the consumer drones Russia uses will be impacted regardless. Russian forces fired artillery and rockets south of Izum from Brazivka to Tetyanivka, while the Russian Ministry of Defense claims that Ukraine fired rockets from HIMARS into Izum. Our assessment of the Azume Axis is the same as it was on August 8th. We last recapped it on Monday's episode around minute 12. You're listening
0: to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News.
1: Looking now at the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. In Kherson, Ukraine struck the Kahovka, Antonovsky, and Daryevsky bridges with rockets fired by HIMARS. The same section of the Antonovsky bridge has been repeatedly targeted by Ukraine, causing progressively worse damage. The Daryevsky bridge appeared cratered in a low-resolution satellite image, and Russia reinstalled the pontoon bridge across the Inulets River. The Kachovka Bridge, which was already badly damaged, was struck while a Russian military convoy was crossing the structure. An extremely graphic video showed multiple body parts and torsos in Russian uniforms scattered across the bridge with the smoking remains of military vehicles in the distance. The video is very not suitable for work and not for children. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. If you want to view the content, We link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Occupation administrators have reduced the downstream flow from the Kohovka Dam to lower the river level and reduce the current, including in the Kherson area. Some quick assessment. Russian combat engineers may have realized that the force of the river current on the barge bridge they're building will cause significant stress, the older Evergreen floating bridge in Seattle had to raise its drawbridge when winds reached 50 miles an hour to prevent the structure from tearing itself apart. Operational Command South reported a squad of Russian troops trying to do reconnaissance and force in the area of Dobryanka. The general staff later said that the entire squad received a Code 200 discharge from the Russian armed forces. Pivden from Command South, a man of few words, simply said, quote, they left, in his report. An editor's note here, Code 200 is the terminology used by Russia and Ukraine for killed in action. Command South also reported that the Ukrainian Air Force struck Russian positions in Optin and Novopetrivka. We had previously assessed Optin as under Ukrainian control and Novopetrivka as contested. Based on this new intelligence, we've updated the map. Russian forces may have reestablished the T-2207 ground line of communication, called a G-Lock or supply line, in northern Kherson Oblast. However, it would be contested in the areas where it travels close to the Inulets River. Russian forces have dug in defensive positions in Blachodatne, in Mykolaiv, and are heavily shelling Ukrainian positions north of the Inuletsky Channel. A video showing the capture of Blahudatne was released by Russian state media. Ukraine has been building defense lines north of the channel since March and has significant reinforcements in this area. A quick assessment. Russia's track record for contested wet crossings is abysmal. Beyond the May 8th disaster in Bilohorivka, Russian forces made repeated attempts to cross the Irpin River in March, which were equally catastrophic. Our assessment in Kherson is unchanged from August 14th. With all four G-locks severed for Russian troops on the west bank of the Dnipro River, resupply will have to be done by barge, ferry, and helicopter. Carrying fuel, replacement equipment, artillery shells, and rockets will be challenging to sustain and support 25,000 soldiers. Ukraine has been targeting ammunition and supply depots, logistics centers, and G-locks, although the amount of supplies available in Kherson is unclear. The first indication of supply issues is already emerging, with complaints online about drinking water shortages in supply drops and only receiving, quote, dry rations for meals. Another sign that supply issues have already started is the S-300 missile attacks on Mykolive have ended. Suppress enemy air defense, or SEAD, missions by Ukraine have helped limit the attacks, but a lack of supply of the larger S-300 anti-aircraft missiles is likely contributing to the issue. Russian Battalion Tactical Groups, or BTGs, are designed to operate for three to five days independent of resupply. Signs that the supply situation is getting more severe won't appear for weeks, but would include abandoned vehicles, increasing complaints about a lack of resources on Telegram, VK, and LiveJournal, looting for food and fuel, and a reduction in artillery fire among frontline units. With mud season fast approaching and the first snow only a month or so away, complaints about the lack of cold weather gear, hypothermia, and low morale from living in the mud would be another indicator that the supply situation is worsening. There remain significant questions on when and if there will be a counteroffensive, and Kyiv has become increasingly contradictory on what will be next. Some officials have told the press that the counteroffensive has already started. An anonymous source close to the Ukrainian government told the Washington Post there would be no counteroffensive because Ukraine doesn't have the resources, saying, quote, We have to be honest. For now, Ukraine doesn't have a sufficient number of weapon systems for a counteroffensive. It's still possible to get a result, but if so, it will be the result of smart Ukraine strategy more than of countering Russia with equal power. End quote. The appearance of Czech hedgehogs in Kherson, Russian forces fearful of moving on the streets due to partisan activity, Russian commanders leaving the region and local government and junior military officers occupying Kherson hospitals and schools to avoid HIMARS attacks all point to the same fact. Regardless of what we may assess or think, or what the Ukrainian government is saying, the Kremlin believes a counteroffensive is coming, and it will fight to hold the western half of the Kherson oblast. In Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia, The Russian Ministry of Defense reported that Ukraine shelled the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant twice but didn't provide evidence. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Nikopol was hit with seven artillery shells, knocking out power to 5,000 and damaging a school and several homes. Marinets was hit by 20 grad rockets. And an area of dachas or second homes, typically a cottage, was badly damaged in Zelenodolsk. Alexander Staruk, Zaporizhia Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the Shevchenkivsky district of Zaporizhia was struck by rockets. At the time of recording, there wasn't any information on damage or casualties. <laughs> Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukraine's Defense Minister, Oleksiy Reznikov, strongly implied the war in Ukraine will continue in 2023 and possibly beyond, saying, quote, It is difficult for me to say, for years, for a year, for a month, because these will still be only my assumptions. There are many factors that will lead us to victory. We will definitely come to it. The question is when and at what price. Today we have a chance to win sooner and cheaper in terms of Ukrainian losses, thanks to the partnership alliance. Reznikov went on to say that he had, quote, certain positive hopes that there would be good news by the end of the year. A train-hauling replacement equipment for Russian forces was spotted on the eastern side of the Kerch Bridge, likely bound for Crimea. All of the equipment is from the Cold War era. The train was hauling IMR-1 engineering vehicles built on the T-55 tank chassis and introduced in 1969, two S-1 Gwodzika 122mm self-propelled howitzers or SPGs introduced in 1972, and two S-19 MSTA 152mm SPGs introduced in 1989. Additionally, T-72 and T-80 tanks were spotted. A video from the Proletarsky district in Donetsk revealed a Russian artillery ammunition cache in the heart of the city. The 122-millimeter shells were scattered across the ground and laying in the mud. The Russian Ministry of Defense and the Donetsk People's Republic have insisted that Donetsk is not militarized and no artillery has been fired from civilian areas. The Wall Street Journal reported that the United States Department of Defense would assign a general to oversee Ukraine's military assistance and training operation programs. The yet-to-be-named commander would oversee the almost $3 billion in military aid announced this week. Belarus announced that the updates required to make their fleet of Su-24 multi-role fighter planes capable of delivering nuclear weapons have been completed. Satellite intelligence shows Russia is removing S-300 anti-aircraft systems stationed in Syria and transporting them to Crimea. Haluk Bayraktar, the CEO of Turkey's Baycar, which makes the Bayraktar TB2 drones used by Ukraine, was pressed by CNN on if the company would ever supply Russia with drones. Bayraktar responded, quote, We have not delivered or supplied them, Russia, with anything. And we will as well never do such a thing because we support Ukraine, support its sovereignty, its resistance for its independence. End quote. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. The Donetsk People's Republic is running a summer camp for the children of Mariupol and released the curriculum and photos of recent graduates. The children wear uniform red shirts and red berets. They are taught to assemble, disassemble, load and fire weapons, how to operate metal detectors, why Ukraine never existed, and the leaders and people that support the idea of Ukraine are evil. The students in what would be better described as a hate camp appeared to be pre-teens in the publicity photos. The exiled Mariupol City Council released a statement comparing the education to attending a Hitler Youth Camp. The Eastern Human Rights Group, operating without a charter, has accused FSB of enabling PMC Wagner Group to run a torture chamber at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Russian forces take people into custody and, after initial interrogation from the FSB, are handed over to Wagner. This matches similar reports from Kherson, where a torture chamber is also allegedly operated. In the Ukrainian suburb of Dedachy, A woman was killed when a Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile being used as a ground-to-ground weapon landed near her home. The attack also destroyed a school. Two civilians were killed in Bakhmut by Russian artillery fire. Ukrainian officials issued a mandatory evacuation order at the end of July, but not everyone heeded the warning. Those who stayed behind had to sign a waiver declaring they were responsible for their own safety. In Slovyansk, the Chemical and Mechanical Technical College campus was shelled, causing severe damage to multiple buildings. The intentional targeting of scientific and educational institutions is considered a war crime. In Kharkiv, a missile attack damaged the historic house of the merchant Adam Petrovsky. Russia has destroyed over a dozen irreplaceable historic buildings across Ukraine that survived World War I, russification under Stalin, World War II, more russification under Stalin, and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Most notable was Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky's summer home, which was destroyed at the beginning of the war. Irina Vereshchuk, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Reintegration of Temporarily Occupied Territories, announced that Kiev would expand evacuation orders beyond Donetsk. In the coming days, Civilians in parts of Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, and Mykolaiv oblasts will be told to leave. The areas impacted have experienced severe damage to infrastructure, which will prevent heat from being available when winter arrives. Ukraine's transition from fall to winter comes quickly and can begin as early as October. Moving on to geopolitical news, Vladimir Solovyov, on his self-titled talk show on Russia One, accused German Chancellor Olaf Scholz of imitating, quote, his idol, Adolf Hitler. He called for the Russian Ministry of Defense to attack Germany for training Ukrainian soldiers and providing weapons. We have intentionally steered clear of former United States President Donald Trump's drama but the release of the FBI's affidavit to justify the search of his Mar-a-Lago home cannot be ignored. Before the warrant was served, the National Archives had recovered 184 documents stored in 15 boxes in an unsecured area of the compound after requesting the return of all missing documents in the first half of 2021. Mixed in with newspaper clippings, notes, and scraps of paper, were 67 documents marked confidential, 92 marked secret, and 25 marked top secret. Included in the top secret documents were reports on military targets, dossiers on foreign leaders and military commanders, and most damaging, quote, named field assets. In October 2021, The United States Central Intelligence Agency sent a top-secret cable to all offices and agents that an unusual number of operatives and informants were being killed, turned into double agents, or captured. The report cited lax procedures being too trusting and hubris within the organization for the problems. The discovery of the classified documents spurred the search of Mar-a-Lago as more materials remain missing from the National Archive. Legal experts explained that even if the documents were declassified correctly, which is highly unlikely, possessing the most sensitive material related to the Department of Defense is still a crime. In economic news, the ruble remains unchanged, with an exchange rate of 60 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil was also unchanged, with WTI crude holding at $93 a barrel and Brent at $101 a barrel. United States' RBOB wholesale gasoline went up a penny to $2.85 a gallon, or $0.75 a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures climbed to $0.81 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates, and don't forget to check out our Week in Review episode tomorrow with David. Until then, stay safe everyone.